Welcome now to the Studs Turkle program, heard on WFMT each weekday from 10 a.m. till 11. And here's Studs. Well, thank you, Don. This morning, my guest is John Cheever. He was in town the other day paying tribute to his friendly, distinguished literary critic, Malcolm Cowley, who has given his manuscripts to the Newbury Library, and there was a, a commemorative event. And after, it's a half hour or so with Mr. Cheever, and after that, the reading of one of his short stories, The Swimmer. In a moment, the program after Don Tate and this message. You're invited to cocktails with the devil in an Art Deco drawing room. That's Chicago City Theater's conception of Bernard Shaw's Don Juan in Hell, opening this evening. Don Juan in Hell is a philosophical comedy that debates and destroys Pat's social notions of virtue, love, marriage, and politics. This first production of Chicago City Theater's subscription season of classics opens tonight at Chicago City Theater in the Fine Arts Building, 410 South Michigan Avenue. For reservations, call 663-3618. You can still own a piece of the Magnificent Mile, a condominium at 535 North Michigan Avenue, and if you act soon, you'll receive the early purchase discount. Although all the studios, as well as the two-bedroom apartments, priced up to $157,000, were sold within the first week, you still have an opportunity to purchase a choice one-bedroom or one-bedroom-with-den unit, priced from $74,000, and you can still receive the 5% discount plus a complete refurbishing program, or, if you prefer, a discount up to 10%. There's still time to own a 535 condominium at one of the most convenient addresses in town, or you can walk nearly anywhere to work, to nearby Water Tower and Michigan Avenue shops, to restaurants, nightclubs, theaters, and movies. Each apartment has bay windows, many with spectacular views. Come see the beautifully furnished models and act quickly to take advantage of the discount offer which can be discounted without prior notice. The sales office at 670-3600 is open from 10 to 7 daily, noon to 5 weekends. 535, where you'll own one of the most valuable pieces of property in Chicago, a piece of the Magnificent Mile. Newbury Library is uh, celebrating the life and times of Malcolm Cowley, perhaps one of the most humane and perceptive literary critics and observers, and his friend John Cheever is here in Chicago for the occasion. How do you describe John Cheever? Certainly a master of the short story, one of the most eminent of American writers, as well as of excellent novels, too. Mr. Chief, if I were to say to you, in reading your stories, and I'm thinking about the collection of 60 recent ones, to me it seems as though you, you, you're the chronicler of a lost tribe in an alien land, a lost tribe of Presbyterians and Episcopalians in what seems to be an alien country. Well, it's uh, uh, very, very nice for you to perceive that in the stories, since I consider the life of man to be uh, basically migratory, uh, basically a search or a pursuit. And uh, loss, I would like to qualify, since it seems from time to time that we do make discoveries. We either have the illusion of, of uh, having hit on some degree of serenity, or it seems to me that from time to time we are quite successful at, uh, <coughs> at arriving at a destination, by which I mean, you know, success, usefulness, or love. Now, I was thinking, as you're talking about the subject of destination, a story comes to mind immediately, one of them, The Swimmer. The Swimmer. And oh, well, the swimmer, the swimmer is a fairly complicated story. 
and it has been subject to a variety of, in, of uh, uh, interpretations, the Freudian interpretation, is that this is Narcissus, this man who swims through a chain of pools. The Marxian interpretation is that in a civilization where everybody has a swimming pool, people are miserable and quarrel. And there are a number of other interpretations on it. The story actually, I think, if it is successful, is successful quite simply because it does not parse. There is no explanation of, the, uh, of precisely what is going on in the story. It doesn't have to be, yet to me, reading it, I'm deeply moved by this guy who's, he dreams and he thinks he has it made and he, he's, obviously he's lost everything. It's in a material sense, like he comes back, the house is empty, the family's gone. And even almost somewhere one of the people say, he grow up, grow up, they say to him. Somebody says, oh, he's still with a boy. Yes, yeah, so his old mistress says, you know, yeah. we will grow mistress. up. Uh, it seems to me that the turning point in the story, and actually it's quite mysterious, is I think when in a midsummer night he looks up and sees in the sky Andromeda and the other winter constellations. Uh, it's quite a mysterious experience, and yet it's one that almost everybody seems to understand. Yeah, but also the, the idea of uh, friends he has and had, his old mistress, the... Uh, is, is that why you have the great line, uh, something, love may be okay, but money, money, uh, greater than love, something like it? No, I don't know. I don't <laughs> so it I, if it was spoken, of course, it was spoken by an enemy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the idea that <coughs> here, here are these people. We think of the first impression, me, a, a guy in Chicago says, describing a certain privileged people. You would, you would seem that way, Privil <coughs> a Scarsdale kind of people, the exurbanites who seem to have it made, and yet as you describe their lives, the, there's a lostness there. If I were to choose one word, it's a lostness. In the very beginning, you speak of a certain moment, uh, New York of a certain light, and Benny Goodman quartets are playing in a, in a store, mm -hmm. and guys wore hats and chain smoked. And at a certain time of the 20s, 30s, when I was a kid in the 20s, read about and think of the lives of these people. You describe them today, though. Well, the sense of loss, of course, it belongs to Malcolm's generation and not, not quite so clearly to mine. It was Gertrude Stein who said, uh, said to Hemingway, you are a lost generation. Uh, <coughs> uh, a label that, the, that, that uh, not only that generation, but um, uh, millions of people seized on and said, we are indeed a lost people. And uh, uh, I am uh, not very much, but somewhat younger and uh, come from a group that has never considered ourselves either to be a generation or to be lost. And I think... Uh, there is nothing final in our experience. I like to think of, uh, we aren't a generation, of course. Uh, we are simply men and women of a variety of ages. But it seems to me that we explore. It seems to me that we're capable of love. It seems to me that we uh, are capable from time to time of courage. And uh, loss does not, I like to think, uh, cover all of my characters. In one of my favorite stories, um, the, the, the story closes with a man watching some naked women walk out of the sea, surely not an image of loss. In another, he watches his wife at a dressing table and realizes how, how, how uh, profoundly important she is to him. And uh, again and again, the stories end with uh, images that are much closer to triumph than loss. And certainly the old man who didn't win the Nobel Prize in the world of apples, there is survival in a certain glorious moment. The old, the old guy. Yes, he succeeds that. in cleansing the thoughts of yeah. his mind, which is, in his case, quite a triumph. Yes. <laughs> but also, he survived. His, all of his colleagues have died, and though he didn't win 
you know, the gun Fallon, as FPA would say way back, he, 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 he has triumphed in his own way, hasn't he? Yes, he does triumph, of course, by a cl uh, uh, it's the opening, of course, of the Christian Mass, cleanse the thoughts of our yeah. hearts, which is uh, something that we all aim for. You know, you said uh, the opening of Christian Mass. In your, in your forward to the collection, the marvelous stories, you speak, though you were not raised a Calvinist, somewhere in the barns of your childhood, there is this sense of Calvinism. And in very fact, you mentioned the Christian Mass here at the moment. There's a theological aspect to all your story, without my being... Yes, well, I'm a, uh, uh, I, usually, I use the word croyant because it's uh, much less of an uh, 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 affirmation or uh, a declaration, actually. And uh, it, it seems to me that uh, one's spiritual experience is not, uh, not in my uh, conversational spectrum. Uh, speaking of New England, I think most of us recognize that there does seem to be a sternness in the air there a censoriousness, which may simply come from the fact that it's farming country, it's quite poor. <laughs> yes, I suppose there is a, a, a pilgrim, a Puritan uh, legacy there. My family, uh, my family were not Puritans. Um, um, Ezekiel Cheever, who uh, founded the Cheever family here, uh, came over in a ship that has never been identified in 1637. And, but it was said at his grave, and I shall mention it this evening, speaking of Malcolm Cowley, seems to me marvelous, got Cotton Mather at the eulogy of it, for Ezekiel Cheever said, the welfare of the commonwealth was always upon his conscience, and he abominated periwigs. I don't think you can say anything more, more consummate or flattering about a man. No, he abominated periwigs. He hated pretentiousness and yes, vanishness. Uh -huh. Well, also historically, it doesn't go into the fact that when he came into a room and found somebody wearing a periwig, he would take it off and throw it out of the window. But, uh, That's pretty good. So <laughs> Cotton Mather offered the eulogy at, at your answer. Uh, Cheever's, yes, at Cheever's, at Cheever's. Uh, Cheever's funeral. You know, I'm thinking, I hate to use that word epiphanal, it's used a lot, but there's so many moments of that in your stories in the housebreaker of Shady Hill. Here's a guy, you know, I guess he's desperate for dough, this good man. And there comes the moment when he returns it. You know, he wants to go back to return the dough he lifted. Yes, yes. Yeah. And but at the very end, the rains come, and it's so he suddenly is. Feels no more than the sound of rain. Re really, yes. Well, I'm so glad you brought up the uh, the uh, those stories that uh, might be thought of as, uh, as as enjoying epiphany. Also, as I recall in that story, the, in the housebreaker, there is a fairly long oratorical peroration, which is an attack on the on the needlessly melancholy. On those who missed the boats, the trains, the ships, I can't remember the uh, section, but it is, a, it is an attack on, on a gratuitous or self-indulgent sense of how lost we are. Hey, that might be good. That's, uh, you just gave me an idea here. Uh, the idea that, you, I probably felt it, but it was in court. The idea that your stories are really uh, affirmative. Many are very, there is an affirmation of. Mm -hmm. of uh, yeah, well, of course, the interpretation of optimism and pessimism is much too simple. Yeah. For the tremendous variety of experience we all uh, yeah. enjoy during the course of a day, but uh, one would not want to be thought uh, a master of the sense of loss. <coughs> not I. <coughs> no. You, but aside from stories of out there, New England or the suburban ex or ex exurbanite stories, your studies of the big city too, uh, about to say Lardner, but it isn't as Cheever. You know the, the 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 pot of gold and oh city of broken dreams, and these are the uh, how you captured very movingly the the nameless people you know who come to the Big Apple you know. 
Yes, with, uh, yes. Oh, uh, 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 yeah, whoever they are, they, uh, they either have a name or, or uh, win a name. In the pot of gold, you know, uh, he, again, he finds something in his wife. Uh, you know, they thought they'd make it, they didn't uh, double cross. What he finds, as I recall, is her beauty. Yeah. Uh, I don't read my own work, and uh, uh, channel, um, public television is doing uh, three of the stories. Mm -hmm. I saw the screenings last week, and uh, one of the stories I was so un totally unfamiliar with it, I didn't know how it was going to end. <laughs> oh, you, you forgot that. You said beauty. I guess maybe that's it. That's another aspect. There is no one dimension uh -huh. to your right. Beauty. So it's a search for beauty always. Eh? Yes, yes. Uh, well, it, uh, it seems to me, it has always seemed to me, that one can't succeed in love and usefulness. And, uh, and it is the search for, uh, for such a success. What better story, example of that, than Oh Youth and Beauty? Oh Youth and Beauty. And there, this, this ex-athlete who obviously hasn't made it, you know, remembers and every Saturday night after the mm -hmm. shindig, yes, he'll get yes. boozed up. He, he's going to make that hurdle. Well, this has been filmed, and um, uh, Mike Murphy plays the uh, uh, plays the old athlete, and Catherine Walker plays his wife, and they do they do they do a terribly good job on it. I uh, uh, I was extremely interested in uh, 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 watching uh, passages of the story translated in terms of imagery without a without a word exchanged, and, uh, and in some instances very successfully, I thought. Yeah, I'm thinking the uh, Bent guy's name is Bentley, right? Chad Bentley. And Cash Bentley. Bentley. Cash Bentley and yeah. Louise. And somehow all their lives, you, I suppose this is, a, I suppose that's what the mastery of a short story is, isn't it? Uh, in, in one moment or one day or one experience, the whole life uh, is, there. The master of a short story, of course, is having somebody whose judgment you esteem come up and say, thank you very much. That's really, <laughs> all, that's really all you ever want. You know the one that haunts me? You know Nelson Algren. Oh, of course I know Nelson Algren, yes. And, and Nelson uh, says, Stud, you got to read this one. And he read it in New York, and it was Torch Song. Oh, really? Yeah, he said, you got to read that one. I read it. I'm so pleased to hear, hear you mention Algren's name. Oh, yeah, well, of course, he's... Uh, he admires you very much. I know. Well, he's not living here anymore. He lives in New Jersey. New Jersey, I know. I know. Coming to Chicago, I've seen Saul Bellow. I've seen you. Look for Nelson Ogre, and then it's time to go home. <laughs> Put me in that league. That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> anyway, coming back to Torch Song. Now, there is somebody I think all of us in our lives may have met, even in passing, brushing that. This woman. How can I describe her? Yet she's deaf. She's. She survives. There's a woman who's gentle. She takes care of guys. But then you know she's death. That is, it's always a, a, a guy at a certain moment in his life, isn't it? And she's there to care for him, mm -hmm. to be kind to him. Uh, yes, well, that story uh, was, written, uh, was written in two or three days. It was written when my uh, oldest son, Benjamin, was born. Uh, it was based on a quotation by Sir Walter Raleigh. The night before he was to be executed in the Tower of London, he said, he wrote a letter to his wife, I said. He, I, I think it was to his wife. And it is something like, think only this of me, that I had nothing to do with death and her unclean trifle, something of that yeah. sort. That is, it was his scorn for death, that it had, had been his scorn for death throughout his life. And... Uh, I have not, however, read the story, I think, since, uh, since it was completed. And uh, 
I only remember that it closes, I believe it closes on, on, on some children in the street singing, uh, I am the king of the castle. Mm -hmm. That's the one where she's untouched and the, the narrator, Jack, mm -hmm. a guy named Jack, always runs into her at parties, always with a guy who's rough and tough and about to be, about to kick off. But she's cool, and he may abuse her mm. in front of others, but she's very cool about it. And finally, he finds himself in her, for want of a better word, possession. Mm. And he breaks through. You're not going to get me. He sees her as what I would call a benign buzzard. And he sees as, as a vulture almost. And yet she's sweet and gentle. It's a remarkable portrait. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so pleased you remember it. But he breaks through. Uh -huh. He gets yeah, no, yeah, he's, I know. It, it, it closes. I am the king of the castle, yeah. which it means getting out, I guess. He escapes. I told a, uh, a reporter a few days ago that I didn't uh, reread my own work. And he said, well, that's fortunate. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't see how often you repeat yourself. <laughs> well, I didn't see that. That's very funny. <laughs> I then I asked yeah. him, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, well, you used uh, uh, describing a book. You said, she sells like real estate. You used it twice. And I said, it was one of my fa father's favorite. Uh, descriptions of a of a boat, and I think it's I think it's damn good. I use it again. You know, since you mentioned your father's description of a boat, there's one there. I'm sure it's not autobiographical. It's just a, uh, a, your your own vision. Reunion. It's a guy who hasn't seen his father. His father mm -hmm. divorced oh, yes. his mother. And what a portrait of the sky, the father. Yes, uh, it's a portrait of a tra uh, actually a tragic relationship yeah. between a father and a son. And alas, there are a great many of those. The correspondence in that story, the popularity of that story, uh, that's curious because one sometimes thinks of frustrated father-son relationships as, being, as belonging, for example, to the Western world. That story is extraordinarily popular in, I'm happy to say, both Japan and Russia. Isn't that interesting? It is extremely interesting. Yeah, Japan yes. and Russia. <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose because it deals with a, a universal it evidently is a universal dilemma, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. The old man embarrassing the kid. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, he is success seemingly, mm -hmm. uh, materially. This guy has a secretary who calls up the son here. He's going to meet at the Grand Central Station. But he embarrasses the kid, which of course is so often the case, in, I suppose, in all societies. Evidently, yes. Yeah. We are inclined to incriminate ourselves. But I was delighted when it was translated into Japanese. That's interesting about Russia and Japanese. <coughs> Cheever stories in Russia, they see, you know, they see themselves there. Oh, uh, yes, well, the Russian reception of the stories and the novels has always uh, 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 bewildered me for time. I always make it very clear when I'm there that I'm not a social critic and that I don't, that I, that I don't consider our economy to be uh, any inferior, any, in any way inferior to theirs or that our way of thinking, uh, 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 freedom and so forth is, uh, uh, is uh, of inestimable importance to us. But what they like, or so far as I've been able to um, discern, what they like, of course, are the descriptions of the sound of rain, the pleasure of seeing a pretty woman walk across mm. a room. These are, uh, yeah. these are why, um, why my work is popular in, in Russia. Yeah, since you talked about society's the opening story of the collection. By this, the collection is not chronological, is it? Is it's it? very loosely chronological. Yeah. It's chronological. I claim that it's chronological, but I don't always tell the truth. I think it opens with, oh... Goodbye, my Goodbye, brother. Goodbye, my brother, yeah, which is... Which was actually, I think, the first long story I wrote at the close of the world, Second World War. Yeah. 
But there's a case of, there's, again, you see, I suppose what hits me, and I'm sure thousands of other readers, is a sudden recognition, you know, the shock of recognition. Uh, this guy, it may be me for, I might be this guy who's not so nice in this very book, in the, the brother, the younger mm -hmm. brother, who makes others feel guilty. There's a righteousness about him, you know, political righteousness, everything that's about him, that makes this guy wants to have a good time, the narrator, feel guilty. And you want to sock him. And indeed, he does mm -hmm. sock him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm beat him over the head. But then, as I recall, the story closes with the uh, good brother, uh, the, uh, the, the more, more robust brother, saying, oh, what can you do with a man like that? And, I, and then he goes into the details. His brother seeks out the cheek with acne. And then he thinks of his brother on the ship. And, and regarding the sea, he would think of it only as, as failures, not as discoveries. And then he, he looks out of the window, I guess, and sees, sees the naked women walk out of the sea. There again. Which, what can you do with a man like that? Oh, that's that? it, yeah. Uh -huh. Now, is that what you, by the way, somewhere that's the, in, in That's in a reprise, that's the next to the last paragraph. Yeah, I but think. in this forward, you're saying that sometimes a phrase can open things up for you. Uh -huh. You were saying out loud somewhere, the guy heard you, you talk out loud. Uh, you say, what can you do with a man like that? Oh, yeah, I was, do, yeah, I was writing the story yeah. loud, that's right, under, under the canopy of the apartment house where we then lived, yeah. And yes, and the doorman said, hey, Mr. Jerry, you're talking yeah. to yourself again. <laughs> I yeah. like that. Do, do, do <clears> you do that? Uh, yes, and I think perhaps my wife doesn't appreciate it as much as, um, as people who don't have to live with it. I seldom work in a room uh, with a closed door. I don't enjoy working in a, with a closed door. I walk around the house. I almost always have an old dog with me. I talk to the dog, and, uh, uh, and if I'm uh, very happy about what I'm writing, I always exclaim loudly about how terrific it is. It must be quite difficult to live with. Yeah, it's great. Your walls are not cork-lined. <laughs> no, they aren't, no. no. <clears throat> I was thinking, so, talking to you, so, so that phrase, what can you do with a man like that? You said it out loud, and did that open things up for you and then led to this story? Or did I know, I was writing the yeah, end of the story. You're writing it. Yeah, I was writing the end of the story. I remember I was going to, uh, I was going to, the, I was going to the Army Pen game with Erwin uh, Shaw. And I was walking up down in front of the um, apartment house, uh, writing the end of the story, uh, waiting to be picked up. And uh, uh, I very often, as I say, write out loud. My name is Johnny Hake, you mm. said once. Yep, mm, yeah, that, that was written out loud in the house. In, in, in the housebreaker. Right. <clears throat> so in, as you worked, sometimes in talking out loud or exclaiming, that's almost like a catapult in a way, isn't it? In a way, it just leads to something else, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. yes, uh-huh. Yes, chain of thought. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the stories that, I think this is one being adapted for TV, the 548, is that? Uh, yes, that's, that's being adapted. I've not seen the adaptation of that. But I like that, well, for a lot of reasons, of course. I wanted the guy to get it, you know. Now this is, I hear you talking about, uh, a young executive, a young executive, seemingly very straight-laced sort of guy who takes advantage of this girl. And, but she's not going to be taken advantage of. But he has a line you got there. I wish I could find that line. It's a great line. It's almost the key to it there. But she had no legitimate business with me. This is a girl he, he seduces, mm -hmm. he betrays, and then tosses her aside, and she follows him. 
and later on scares the hell out of him, threatens to kill him. But he says he wanted to avoid it because she had no legitimate business with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's as, though, it's as though he never did anything, you know. I thought of the Buchanans of, of uh, Great Gatsby. They do things, and they go along. They destroy people's lives, go along as though it had nothing to do with them. Yes, that's true. It's, uh, alas, true of most yeah. of us uh, at one time or another. We take a great deal from people and uh, <coughs> sometimes um, neglect to recognize them. Yeah, but he, he got it. He got it, yeah. He got that scare, didn't he? Uh-huh. Oh, he was uh, it's a, it's a, a, a revolting specimen, is that cool? Very respectable sort of guy. But I, but I, this is a crazy question to ask. In the idea for a story, there is no one way. It can be any. It could be a phrase. It could be a person you see. It could be a look. Anything. The basis of the the inspiration for a, for a story. There is no one basis for it. Uh, I ask myself, and I think this has always been the case. Do I have anything to say that strikes me as being urgent? That is urgent to me and urgent to the men and women I know and love. And if I feel that what I have to say is urgent, then I, then I then pursue the idea. It's pretty much it's pretty much Malcolm Cowley's credo, isn't it? Uh, somewhere along the line, I think it's an exile's return. And when he, says, he speaks about literature and life, he says it has to have. A, that's be certain. I like the, I like the things banging away there. Uh, Life is real and earnest. We hear the uh, pipes going. Uh, and it has to have a certain urgency, or a certain. You, you have a need to say it, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, and also, uh, it has to be a mutual urgency. The uh, reader has to need to hear it. Uh, my feeling is uh, now that I've grown uh, grown old, of course, is that the uh, writer is completely dependent upon an intelligent and a discerning reader that it is a mutual success in literature is a mutual exertion. It is rather like a kiss and something you can't do alone. Mm-hmm. So that's always there. I mean, it's, it's not something that uh, is going to be very obscurantist. No, no. I was going to say, since you read it, I'm going to make confession to you. I didn't ask for your permission. I should have. I read a couple of your stories out loud on the radio. A oh, really? Times. Yeah, but uh, now I'm asking for your permission. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what, which ones did you read? I read Torch Song. And the housebreaker. Oh, really? I've never. Yeah. I read the housebreaker once at a public library, and it was quite. It was great and fun. I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, your stories. I was going to ask you about that. Has it occurred to you that they make great out loud reading? I've never recorded, and I think I shan't record any of them. You will, you say? I think I shan't. No. no? I've been asked to record them, and um, no, I do. The one I love reading, the death of Justina. However, uh, I do find that readings. Uh, uh, throw my time, my schedule off, and I will give one reading this year in Dallas in November. It will be the only reading I give. The death of Justina is a death of Justina. Is terrific oh. fun to read. I wow! Don't know. I uh, what could they do with her? She dies at the table. Now there's uh, a question of zoning. That's a uh, takeoff. Did yeah. that? Was there any incident? Anything? Any? No. Something? No. I thought some ordinance somewhere no. That, that. No, it's completely it, made up. But here again, this story has been translated, I think, into 16 languages. Really. It isn't so much zoning as it's bureaucracy. Yeah, bureaucracy. Everybody recognizes, yeah. you know, even in the most, you know, in the wildest parts of Asia, everybody recognizes bureaucracy. Yeah. And this is for those who have, well, of course, I suggest a yeah. reading, naturally. It's now in, under one cover, you know, uh, the stories of John Cheever. 
published. Oh, you is it Farrak? No, Knapp. No, no, it's Knapp. 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 Yeah. Knapp has and been my publisher. Here she, here's Justina in the chair. And now the question is what to do, how can, <laughs> it is bureaucracy, of course. Another story that I think has a familiar ring to a lot of people in meeting somebody, an attractive young, the chaste Clarissa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. so well, that, of course, is a bimbo. And, uh, yes, and uh, her, her, the line, I believe, uh, that makes it quite obvious that he can seduce her is when she says, this rock has grown since last year. And he says, well, I don't know what you mean. And she says, well, the rock has grown. And he said, but rocks don't grow. And she said, don't you know anything? Yeah. <laughs> rock, of course rocks grow. And then he realizes, of course, this is a fairly easy conquest. Uh, because he also <laughs> gave her to understand she was intelligent. Oh, she's very intelligent. Well, very serious intelligent. That was well, it. That was it, yeah. I, I suppose this is one of the... Uh -huh aspects of very beautiful women sometimes, they think they're not respected simply for their body of beauty and not for their brains. And along comes this rather expert seducer, and he's, he makes it clear that she's very intelligent. And that's all she needed. I think the last line, yes. that's how easy it was, or yeah. something like it. Yes, <laughs> she's very brilliant, yeah. Again, you know, there's another, you don't mind this, do you? No, I no. Ask, there's another, uh, two stories, but they're, Different, and yet there's a similar impulse, and that's the chimera and uh, country husband. And here's, here's a discontent. The guy doesn't quite know why. In one case, the wife nags. It's pretty clear. But he always the image of this beauty, this girl mm -hmm. out there. In both cases, there's a real girl in the country husband, uh, this girl named Murchison. There's a real girl, and he, he, it hits him that he loves her, and obviously there's no ghost of a chance, and he makes a kind of a fool of himself. But then he recovers. And the other one, the imaginary, Olga. So in both cases, a guy of a certain stage in his life, something's missing. Well, I think at a certain stage, I think we all feel that something's yeah. missing. It, uh, it is very much, for me, the sense of being alive. It isn't necessarily, that we're, it isn't necessarily a lack. It's a desire. It's, um, uh, it's a question of uh, the ardor with which we approach life, I think. I hey. mean, utter contentment is, is, is something we seldom yeah. see. So now we come to another aspect, right? That they are passionate. They're cool. How can a guy say? They're seemingly cool, but very passionate, full of ardor. All of them are full of a great deal of uh, deep longing, which you say what life's all about. Otherwise, it would be vegetables. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Oh, I know what it is. I was thinking of a couple of things here. One is, aside from the stories we spoke of, the big city, too, there's a guy named Clancy who's a doorman. Uh -huh. and, and there are different guests at the hotel, and one has given him a hard time because Clancy's a good, uh, devout Irish Catholic and straight. And there's this elderly homosexual guy there. And there's this conflict between the two, and yet somehow there's a warm feeling at the end when one helps the other. Oh, no, as I recall, the homosexual tries to commit suicide. Yeah. I think Clancy saves his life once and perhaps twice. Oh, this is not, um, you know, not, this is not meant to reflect on homosexuals yeah. or anything. Um, I, uh, I, I honestly don't remember the no, story I too think, clearly. Well, he does, but yeah, as what 
I'm talking about my, I'm telling the author about my reading of it. This is funny. Yeah, well, it, it yeah. is funny. Yeah. I think to me it was uh, just that guys of two different cultures entirely seemingly not understanding each other, yet the, the need. Uh, when, when the pinch came, the need. And the other guy tried to raise money for Clancy when he thought Clancy was sick, too. So in the middle of this double humiliation, there's almost a mutual understanding. Yes, I think Clancy and the, and the homosexual guy uh, understand one another, and they, uh, I certainly hope they understand one another in the, uh, and the story, as the story closes. We're doing, by this is a conversation with John Cheever here in Chicago. He's paying tribute to his friend and colleague, Malcolm Cowley. And this is by way of uh, just reminding the audience <laughs> what a remarkable master of the short story he is. Knopf of the publishers and uh, the complete works of Cheever are now available aside from the various ones you've read in The New Yorker and other magazines. And we haven't talked about your novels about Falconer and the Wap Shop Chronicle. And Falconer again, the matter of revelation and discovery, isn't there? This guy in a wholly different world in the pokey discovers love in a different way. Yes, yes. I'm so glad you pronounced it with a broad eye. I have I've been talking with people who pronounce it falconer. And I'm damned if I can I can't I can't dial my A up to a falconer. Uh, you know, without uh, I don't know, distorting my whole face. Any thought comes to your mind. There there's sixty stories here and they're beauties. Any thought comes to your mind before we say goodbye for now? No, well, I'm very pleased to be in Chicago, and I woke this morning and thought that it's the only great city in the world that I know, absolutely the only great city in the world, where I can wake and look out of my hotel room at a beach and see waves breaking. I think there is a beach in Morocco, but it's nothing like the beach in the lake shore here. And uh, it's, uh, I should think of... Uh, Thank you very much for being here. And so, a conversation with John Cheever, and after we hear from Don Tate, I'll be reading one of his stories, the one we talked about briefly, The Swimmer, after Don. You're listening to Studs Terkel on WFMT. If you're wondering whatever happened to the proud craftsmanship of the good old days, the careful carpentry that lasted a lifetime, sturdy doors and windows that worked right for as long as anyone could remember, one name brings back that kind of quality when it comes to aluminum storm doors and windows. The name is Brockman, built to last, with a quality well beyond anything you see in department stores and home centers. Judge for yourself, the Brockman storm door is made to stay sturdy and rigid. It has a one-piece wood core cut from solid board. Nobody builds a door that way except Bachman. Bachman storm windows are built tougher, too. They fit tight and they work smoothly. If you want the best for your home, visit Bachman for storm doors and windows, built to work and built to last. Sold only by the Bachman Company. See the yellow pages, or for the store nearest you, dial B-O-C-K-M-A-N. Bachman. Spend an evening with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Recent concerts are brought to you on WFMT every week by Amoco. The Chicago Symphony, Sir George Schulte, music director. Plan to listen at 8 p.m. Tuesday for a concert taped in London's Royal Albert Hall during the orchestra's 1978 tour, featuring Beethoven's First Symphony and Bruckner's Seventh Symphony, presented by Standard Oil and its Amoco companies.
he refers to hearing Benny Goodman music, uh, a time, a place, an idea, in the, the forward to his short stories. And this is our program for this morning. And after we've been done, take a word about tonight's program and tomorrow's. James Woodmore brings his portrayal of Will Rogers' USA to the Drury Lane Water Tower stage, now through October 28th. Elliot Wald of the Sun-Times said, Whitmore has captured the Rogers persona alive. It's a 100th anniversary celebration of the legendary American cowboy philosopher whose humor has a timeless quality that makes us wonder how much we've learned over the years. My little jokes don't hurt nobody, said Will Rogers, but when Congress makes a joke, it's a law. When they make a law, it's a joke. James Whitmore as the legendary Will Rogers, a one-man show at Drury Lane Water Tower, now through October 28th. Phone 266-0500 or Ticketron. Some people think it's extravagant to fly Concorde, possibly because the journey's over so quickly they feel they haven't had their money's worth. But of course they have. For very little more than you pay for first class, British Airways Concorde flies you to London in just half the usual time, which, if you're doing important business, really pays off. You not only arrive the same day, ahead of the competition, you arrive in better shape, feeling fresh and alert, unnerving the competition still further. That's the beauty of British Airways' little shortcut, not to mention the joy of whining and dining on champagne and smoked salmon while traveling at twice the speed of sound. You've no idea how delicious smoked salmon tastes at twice the speed of sound. Next time you go to Britain on important business, take the shortcut. Tell them to book you on Concorde. You can connect with British Airways' daily noontime Concorde in New York and arrive in London from Chicago the same day. Studs? Yes, sir. Tonight is the rebroadcast of a conversation on the music of Luciano Pavarotti, who's taking part in the gala uh, Tuesday, uh, Sunday afternoon. Tomorrow morning, uh, another conversation.